Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. Shalom, everyone. Soharayim Tovim. Good afternoon. It is now the afternoon hour. Looks like some folks are still connecting, so wait a couple more seconds here. And for those watching on Facebook, hello to you too. Thank you for joining us. Okay, well, I think we will get started and hopefully those of you who uh, are still connecting to audio i hope you can hear uh, and if not you're just going to hear my random introductory ramblings you're just going to miss that part so that's okay uh, but i want to welcome everyone again uh, and this concludes this session concludes our three-part series on jewish food from around the world uh, and very excited that this is a team effort uh, rabbi dreyfus and i will be co-teaching today. So I'm gonna kick things off and then hand it over to him. Uh, and then hopefully we'll have uh, some time for discussion toward the end. So I will ask uh, as much as possible to save questions and thoughts until the end of our hour, until the last 10 or 15 minutes or so. Um, so what we're gonna do today is talk about two Jewish holidays, the ones that we are right in between right now. Uh, and those would be the holidays of Purim and Passover. So I will be starting things off with Purim. And this is the one time I will ask for some questions, uh, or some, I will ask a question and ask for some feedback here. When I talk about Purim food, what comes to mind? What are some traditional Purim foods? Confessions. Yes, thank you for the obvious answer. Hamantashen. Uh, all right, what else? We're struggling, right? We're thinking Purim Carnival cakewalk cake, maybe? Like, <laughs> I was going to say alcohol, but I don't know if that counts as a food. <laughs> I suppose. I mean, that is, yeah. Um, you know, alcohol does have a tradition or a connection to Purim, which we could talk about a whole different class. But yeah, actually, not what I was thinking, but appropriate. Yeah. Um, but besides alcohol, and even then, like, if we said alcohol, is there a particular alcohol um, associated with Purim? And I don't know, but I, I can't think of one in particular. It's not like a brandy holiday or, I don't know, uh, a wine holiday versus it's just alcohol. Um, okay, so let's Rabbi? start. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I'm trying to log on on Zoom on my computer and the Zoom is not opening. I transferred to my phone 
Mm-hmm. And that's how I'm on. I don't know if it's a problem for others or not. Okay, good to know. Um, I don't know. I don't. It, it's possible other folks are having trouble. I hope not. Um, but I'm glad you're able to join us. And I don't see any obvious issues on our end. Doesn't mean there aren't any. But but thank you. Um, all right, I'm gonna share my screen. So when we think Purim, we think Hamantashen, and this is my annual reminder. Um, if you learn nothing else or remember nothing else from this week's class, may it be this. Hamantashen is a Yiddish word, and Yiddish and German and probably Dutch and other languages, although I'm not quite so sure about those. But the way that you add a plural in these languages is with an E-N ending, not an S, but an E-N. That means Hamantashen is a plural. Again, if you remember nothing else from today, may it be this, that I ate 11 hamantaschen, which means in the box, there is only one hamantash remaining. The singular of hamantaschen is hamantash, if you're only having one. Why do I tell you this? Because years ago, before I became a rabbi, when I worked in a synagogue, there was a rabbi who felt it very important to correct people and make sure they knew that they were using the word correctly. And I saw that rabbi and I thought, gosh, I want to be like him one day. And here I am. So carrying the tradition on. Um, Yes, this is the hill I have chosen to die on. Hamantash. All right. But back to our pointed hand. When we think Purim foods, we generally think of this, and then we have to stretch or think about alcohol. Sure, I'll allow that one. Um, And when Rabbi Jeff and I were planning today and talking about uh, how we're going to split this up with Passover and Purim, we both said, that sounds interesting, but I'm not sure how that's going to work. Is there really any Purim food out there? Because both of us, um, when we were thinking about it, we were like, yeah, Hamantaschen. Uh, that's it. And what I discovered, had the privilege to discover, is that there is an immense amount of different Purim foods from around the world uh, associated with this holiday. And one of the reasons, I think, is that there's this tradition of Mishloach Manot, of giving baskets of treats to people uh, as part of the holiday, you know, that goes back to, you know, uh, the the Megillah itself, that you're supposed to share um, treats and goodies with people. And so you got to put stuff in the basket as a result of that. So there was this reason uh, or this uh, this motivator to try to come up or to produce things that could be associated with the holiday. So as a result, uh, there's quite a lot of stuff. So I want to share it with you today. Um, it's really just going to be a slideshow. Hopefully y'all had uh, some snacks or something earlier because there's a lot of food. Uh, well, it's all food uh, that you're going to see. So let's just go through it and I'll tell you a little bit about the different things. So I tried to break this up into categories. We're going to look at, I think it's 14 foods um, in the next 13 minutes or so. <laughs> uh, and I tried to break them up into categories. So the first category, well, let me show you the first food here. This is called phalaris. And I am going to pronounce every single one of these 14 things incorrectly. So disclaimer right there. Uh, this is what I think is called phalaris. Uh, and it is comes from uh, either Greece or Turkey. And so trying to figure out what this is, right? I will tell you what the categories are of the different foods, the way I divided them. And this is part of the first category, which is things that are supposed to look like Haman. <laughs> So that might sound weird, except Hamantaschen, his ears, right? 
So we're used to this kind of unusual concept of eating an effigy, so to speak. Um, so we shouldn't be too surprised uh, that there are other ways to do it too, besides just nibbling on Haman's ears. All right, so what are we looking at here? Um, these are, like I said, Phalaris, uh, and it is supposed to represent, depending who you ask, Haman's feet. Okay, maybe. I'll be honest, I don't quite see it. Another thing is that it is supposed to, the egg, that's an egg, a hard boiled egg in the middle of it. And it's supposed to represent a prison uh, around Haman because Haman is captured, right? The evil man has been um, arrested or, or taken into custody. Uh, and the other, uh, the other explanation I heard or I found was that it's supposed to represent the gallows or the noose around Haman's head, Haman's head being the egg uh, here. So you may have noticed all of those things we got from feet to prison to noose. Uh, none of those things are exactly the same. Uh, and this will be a theme today that a lot of these explanations for like, this is supposed to be this or that, um, you'll find wildly contradictory or different explanations if you look online in different Jewish cookbooks or my Jewish learning or things. Um, these are traditions and we should be used to that with Jewish tradition, right? With that, almost everything you ask, well, why do we do it this way? And you get four different completely opposite answers, explanations. Uh, so no different here. But so here it is with a hard boiled egg inside um, and a similar but different dish, ojos de Haman. Ojos means eyes. These are Haman's eyes. Again, these are uh, hard boiled eggs inside, also egg bread. And from my research, there's also some Christian traditions of doing this uh, tied into Easter, uh, which makes sense. Purim and Easter come kind of close together depending on the year. Uh, wouldn't be a surprise that, there, uh, that there's variation here, or that there's crossover between the two. But uh, Ojos de Haman, this is Moroccan, uh, and I think other parts of North Africa as well. Uh, and spread throughout uh, the Jewish world. But its lineage traces to Morocco, uh, Morocco. And there are traditions of how you're supposed to eat it. Uh, and one is that you pluck out, so the egg represents the eye in this case, not the head. And you pluck out the egg first and you eat the egg first as a way of, I guess, symbolically saying, Haman has been destroyed. Um, and then you go on to the rest. And I did find, this is just for fun, uh, you can get an entire uh, breaded effigy or make your entire breaded effigy if you want. This, from what I can tell, appears to be a modern creation, like someone in the last 10 years that was inspired by the more traditional, whoops, oh no, going way too far ahead, and said, I can take this one step further, or, you know, 10 steps further, and made an entire Haman. Um, but uh, if you Google, if you do an image search, you can see this. Some other people have done things similar. I don't believe this is traditional. I thought it was fun to share, though. Uh, and I could be wrong. Maybe there are communities that have been doing this for a long time, but none that I could find. Uh, OK, so we're still sticking with things that look like Haman. Here is Caveos di Aman. And this, I believe, is Italian that I just butchered, uh, although um, this was traditional in Bulgaria, despite the Italian name. Uh, yeah. So what is this supposed to be? This is Haman's hair, also known as pasta. Um, that is pasta in there. Uh, and there's some other uh, symbolism of the other ingredients here. Um, olives and hard boiled eggs are included, uh, which are both traditional symbols of mourning. So this ties in with some of the Purim themes here that, you know, we think of Purim as a party, a celebration. It is, but this was also, if you read the story, a time until the happy ending where the Jews all thought that they were about to be murdered. 
uh, and that this would be, you know, the, the end of Judaism in this community, in this land. Um, so this kind of ties on with that element of the Purim story uh, and remembering uh, the difficult time that it was. Uh, okay, so that's Haman's hair. And finally, I couldn't find a, a, an actual name for this. If you Google it, you will find a million recipes, Haman's fingers. Uh, so we can finally, the last part of Haman that we can eat, uh, at least that I have found. Oh no, I'm sorry, there's one more after this. Haman's fingers, uh, it is uh, grease and turkey, although in other places as well, it's phyllo dough, uh, chopped almonds and cinnamon. Uh, and then you uh, roll it or you uh, brush it with either margarine or butter, depending on your dietary needs, if you're um, pre uh, preparing it in a kosher style. Uh, and, you know, you end up with this uh, and meant to be uh, uh, symbolic of Haman's fingers. All right. And then we have uh, fezuelos. I am sorry. I'm sure that one is wrong. Um, Thin fried dough, this is not unique to Judaism. Uh, there are other uh, cultures, traditions that uh, have a, the same dish, but uh, in the Jewish sense, it's tied into Purim and uh, it is supposed to also represent Haman's ears. So we have, and if you look at it and say, that doesn't look like an ear, well, neither does a hamantashen, does a hamantash, sorry, see what I did there. Um, but you know, it kind of does, right? Uh, all right, so that is all of the parts of Haman's body uh, that we could eat. And now uh, there are other things as well, other traditional dishes. These are Nani Berenji. Oh, and this category is stuff that is supposed to look like other stuff. It's a smaller category here. So these are uh, Middle Eastern dish. Um, these are shortbread cookies with black uh, poppy seeds. The seeds are meant to represent or symbolize the fleas, the little bugs, the fleas that were all over Haman because he was a dirty, awful, evil man. Which is an interesting symbol, you know, <laughs> or at least to my, uh, when I was learning about it, to think of like um, having a symbolic pest on your food. Um, but, you know, it's just poppy seeds. Uh, so Nani Berenji, uh, again, Middle Eastern, and uh, Debla. This is the last one in this category. Uh, this is North African in origin. Uh, thin dough wrapped in the shape of a rose, deep fried until golden brown, soaked in sugar syrup, covered in crushed nuts. Uh, and the roll is meant to symbolize not the ear of Haman, but the Megillah, the scroll. Uh, maybe you can see it there, but it's supposed to look like a scroll, a uh, roll of dough, though, um, with, in this case, sesame seeds on it. Um, there are other toppings as well. And that's Debla, North African dish. So those are all of the symbolic foods. And then we still have uh, a number of others. And this is uh, a category that's just regular old baked goods. You'll notice a lot of these things are baked goods, things that you can pass, off, pass on that last for a day or two. Um, you know, as opposed to like, I don't know, uh, um, pot roast, which does not, but things that you could put in a basket and give to neighbors or friends uh, and would keep for a little bit. Uh, so Baba Tamar, Tamar is uh, date in Hebrew, and uh, Baba, I think, means cookie in uh, a Middle Eastern language, uh, but it is Iraq, Iraqi in origin and date-filled cookies. So it's kind of similar to a hamantash, to hamantashen, um, different shape slightly, but um, as uh, among uh, Iraqi Jews or Jews of Iraqi descent to give um, Baba Tamar. And then another one, we have 
Hadgi Bada, uh, almond or cardamom cookie, popular also among Iraqi Jews. And the last one of just regular old treats, uh, ma'amul. This is a uh, interfaith delicacy, we can put it that way, that uh, it's known in the uh, Arab world as something that um, Muslims eat during Ramadan or to break Ramadan that Christians eat um, before Lent uh, and uh, during Easter. And then Jews uh, would associate this with Purim. So this was a, or is a Purim themed dish. Uh, when it's Purim, it is filled, it is nut filled, you use a nut um, filling on the inside, and Rosh Hashanah is the other time when this would be served, and then it would be date filled, and I'm not sure if I grabbed the right image online, I can't tell, what do we think, are those nuts or is that uh, crushed date inside, not totally sure. All right, so that takes us through two of our three categories, and I want to stop for a second, and you may have noticed something um, of where in the world uh, almost everything that I mentioned comes from. Which would be the Sephardic world, Sephardi world, or the non-Ashkenazi world. And so you may be thinking, uh, or you may have noticed, or if not, I will lead you to notice. Well, isn't that interesting that there are so many different kinds of foods uh, how was it that in the Ashkenazi world, the Jews of Central and Eastern Europe, how did they end up with only a cookie, a hamantaschen? Uh, how did that happen? Whereas there's such diversity in so many different kinds of foods uh, in the rest of the Jewish world. And it's a trick question because the Eastern European or the Central European Jews did not end up with only hamantaschen. There are Purim foods in the Ashkenazi tradition. So I wanna share some of those right now. Uh, this is called koilich. And you may notice it looks like something we are familiar with uh, that this, and it's hard to get a scale, but this is large, <laughs> a sense of scale, uh, that this is um, a large version of a challah. So you may have seen this, uh, I've seen it in Israel, um, and I suppose in, in movies and film, that in certain celebrations like weddings is where I think of it most, you'll see that there is a supersized challah served. Um, and that actually, I always just thought that's a big challah. And you have a big challah when you have a lot of people like at a party. I didn't realize that I didn't think much more about it than that, um, but it's a little bit more than that. It's, so it's called koilich, whether it's for Purim or not. Uh, and the reason that for Shabbat, if you're familiar, a lot of people will have two halas, and that's to represent the double portion of Shabbat, uh, that the manna fell twice as much on Friday or on uh, Arab Shabbat so that people could gather it up because the manna didn't fall on Shabbat itself, according to the Torah, uh, since it's a day of rest. And so in keeping with that, you have two challah loaves, uh, but you only need two challah loaves on when it's Shabbat because of that. Uh, so if it's some other reason or at some other time when you're having challah, then you know you don't need two, you just have one and you can have a bigger one. So that's part of it. I'm sure a lot of it is also practical. Again, if you have you know, hundred guests at your wedding uh, and you know, you're gonna say mozi over the challah, yeah, you wanna have one where you can give each person more than like a little crumb. Um, but so that's koilich, and that's the name of it. Uh, but there is a special Purim koilich, as you see here. Uh, this one is extra festive. Uh, let me see. Normally or traditionally, you know, you could have raisins or something just sweet in it, uh, but candy as well. 
Uh, and this would be served, this can be served during Purim, uh, something festive, uh, almost like a cake bread, right? Uh, so that's one thing, Koilich. Another, um, which has a million different names uh, in Polish, it's Gwampki, uh, and I couldn't tell you any others, but there are many, and I couldn't pronounce any others for sure. Uh, stuffed cabbage, so served uh, in Lithuanian uh, Jewish communities, Polish communities, Hungarian communities, probably other communities tied into Purim. Uh, the explanation I found <laughs> was that, uh, well, you know, here, I probably could have picked a better picture, the um, stuffed cabbage is cut open, but normally it's presented just wrapped and covered like, think a egg roll. I don't know why that popped in, uh, but with cabbage and meat. Uh, but, um, and so normally you don't see the meat until you open it up. And so the explanation I found on one website was that it's supposed to remind us of the secret power of God. You know, God is uh, allegedly hidden in the Purim story, but God is always there. Um, and so the meat represents that of you don't know what's there until you open it up and then you see what it's filled with. There are a million different explanations. I would say, as the person who's just no fun, um, that this is a very common dish in the region, uh, Jewish or otherwise. So. It's not a surprise Jews were eating it. And when Jews, when anyone, you know, incorporates an addition to their own culture, they give it meaning. And so that was the a meaning. There are probably a dozen others uh, for why this is connected to Purim. Uh, but stuffed cabbage rolls. Uh, and finally, one more extra fun. Uh, so I don't know if you recognize this. I recognize it from like tins of cookies that occasionally I find as a gift or something. Uh, so uh, palmier or palmier, or if you're American, uh, palmers, I think, um, but French. So French delicacy, French cookie, uh, and French Jews did not invent this cookie, but began to eat it during uh, Purim because it also has the shape of Haman's ears. So, you know, I know I put this in the other category instead of foods that remind us of Haman, uh, but wanted to also include it in the Ashkenazi uh, category too, for another example here. So I believe that's the end. That's my slideshow, my adventure of the Jewish culinary scene for Purim. And I will just wrap up uh, with a thought here of, we have all of these Purim foods, and there are more. This was not an exhaustive list. Uh, this is when I just felt overwhelmed and like, okay, I can't add any more to this, uh, but hopefully a good sampling. But we have so many, including Ashkenazi foods. So it's not just an issue of, well, you know, th there's different food traditions, but we are, most American Jews are Ashkenazi, so that's why we don't know about them. But even on the Ashkenazi side, there's a lot. So how could it be that all we know of is the cookie, or all most of us know of, is hamantaschen. And, you know, I think that something, it has something to do with migration and, um, 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 what is it, uh, homogenation, <laughs> that we had all of these local customs, and, and a lot of them, unfortunately, are probably just gone. But, you know, just in certain villages or certain regions uh, of, of Europe. Um, but then all those Jews, right, move in, uh, end up in the Lower East Side or Galveston or wherever they end up. And, you know, those communities just all kind of come together. So 
you find some common denominators, things that get preserved, and the rest gets left behind. You have this choke point uh, when this immigration happens. So a lot of the diversity of Jewish food culture, I think, got left behind, not just with Purim, but with everything, where we have like settled on, you know, what, 15 dishes probably that we call Jewish food. I can guarantee you that there is so much more than that in Jewish history, uh, in Jewish culture, wherever you're looking in the world. But because of just the way the migration worked to America, we settled on you know, the big ones, the matzo balls, the latkes, that sort of stuff. Um, but we left a lot behind. So it's fascinating to be able to explore this and see all of this variation. Uh, it was eye-opening for me, and I hope it was interesting for you too. And this is easily accessible. Google Purim foods, and you'll find on My Jewish Learning, tons, half of these things came from My Jewish Learning, along with recipes, if it's something that you're interested in making. So um, if people have thoughts, questions, we'll save it again to the end. I'm gonna turn it over to Rabbi Jeff right now, uh, who will guide us through Pesach, and then we will have a discussion uh, for the final quarter or 10 minutes or so of our hour. So Rabbi Jeff, take it away. Rabbi Jeremy, thank you so much. That was really a truly mouthwatering uh, presentation. And uh, some, for some reason, I made the mistake of not eating uh, before this. And uh, whew, man, that looked really good. Um, I want to preface by echoing a lot of what Rabbi Jeremy said. And um, by saying, I think it is really to our uh, true loss, true detriment, true uh, uh, deprivation as American Jews that so much of the food culture of other Jewish communities from around the world has not made it onto our tables. And um, when you go to Israel, the one of the best parts is the fact that in Israel, there was a true ingathering of exiles. Um, as, as Rabbi Jeremy said, the majority of, of American Jews uh, draw their descent from Ashkenazim, from Northern Europe um, and, and Western Europe, and I guess Eastern Europe. Uh, but um, we, there's a large Persian community here, um, which we'll talk about a little bit and, and Jeremy did because of course, uh, Persia is the center of, uh, the Purim story, but, um, in Israel where there's just been a true in gathering of exiles over the last 70 years, you can walk around the Shuk, the market in Jerusalem or in whatever city you're in. And there's stalls with different foods from different places. Um, and that's my favorite part was, uh, when I lived there was going and, and exploring, um, North, North African food, uh, they have this soup called Marat Kube, which means Kube soup. And um, this has nothing to do with Passover, which is my favorite uh, Jewish food now. And they, they have these little dumplings made out of semolina dough, uh, filled with meat usually. Um, so you can get them, there's vegan, Israel has the highest amount of vegans per capita of any country in the world. And um, so they, they also have plenty of vegan restaurants that have them, but there's different ones. Uh, my favorite is called, um, it's called literally the sour kind, uh, a lot of lemon juice and vinegar and stuff to make it sour. Uh, but there's also ones uh, with beet broth, with tomato broth. So uh, I'll drop a link in the chat to, to some pictures uh, later. I didn't put any in my presentation, but um, that is all to say that Passover, our, our holiday, perhaps most centered around food, um, has really fascinating dishes from all over the world um, that are, look very different from 
um, what we call matzah ball soup or what in, in Yiddish and in, in Israel they call um, kanadalach. Is that right? Kanadalach is matzah ball soup. So I'm thinking of, uh, or is kanadalach something different? Pretty sure, unless I'm having a total brain fart. That it's the it's the matzah balls themselves versus versus the soup. Perfect. Thank you. Kanadalach is matzah balls. Matzah balls. Thank you, Linda. Um, but here we go. So I, I want to take you on a tour of of uh, planet Earth um, by food by the foods. Um, and I wanted to start with Italy because a few years ago, um, my little brother was studying abroad in Italy, and my parents went to visit. And uh, when did they go visit? But on Passover, right? The very worst time to go to Italy of all places, uh, where you know pizza, pasta, none of it you can eat on Pesach. Uh, but I was curious, what do they eat in Italy um, on Passover? So in fact, they have this special kind of donut called a uh, siambaletta or something like that. Someone can correct my accent. Um, and this is something that until very recently could only be made communally because of the, um, the amount of time that um, flour can come into contact with water to make it kosher for Passover is less than 18 minutes so that it won't rise. Um, it, the, the rabbis of, of the mission and Talmud believe that um, rising just due to the natural yeast in the air would start to happen um, after 18 minutes, but anything, um, and, and so matzah that's made anywhere in the world has to be cooked within the first 18 minutes of water coming into contact with the flour. Until recently, the rabbis of Italy said, it's, a, we don't, it's too risky to make this at home, so it has to be made centrally if, um, to, to make sure that you know we, we're staying on schedule, 18 minutes isn't coming up. Um, it, very recently, uh, in the last 20 years, they've changed the the rules and have given people more latitude to do it at home. And so now this is something that many families make. Um, it, it looks certainly like a uh, a bagel, but it's sweet, um, like a like a Passover donut, and looks. I've never had one, but it looks a little crunchy. Um, this one over here on the right is a exactly what it looks like a stuffed um tomato which if you know of course uh there's stuffed cabbage in northern europe and various places where cabbage is more common here in italy how fitting could it be to have a stuffed tomato um it's called a e pomodori coriso or something like that um but what i want to point out is that in ashkenazic culture it's forbidden to eat what are called kitniot, which are um, like rice and legumes. But um, in the Sephardic world, and Italy is an interesting blend of Sephardic and Ashkenazi, um, um, kitniot are allowed, and so therefore their traditional dishes have rice. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that notion because much of the most interesting, I think, Passover food comes from the Sephardic world. And so there's a lot of rice and beans um, going on. The as an aside, the conservative movement about, I don't know, about 10 or so years ago, um, for the first time ruled that kitney oat is okay. And so now you have uh, a lot a lot of conservative and reform Jews who maybe grew up not eating kitney oat, but now um, rice and beans uh, make it much easier to keep Pesach. Um, and you can have hummus, which is a bean. Okay. I, I want to 
uh, share one kind of remarkable thing about Paso about the Seder plate. So you know, in in America, we generally have really small kind of token items: one hard-boiled egg, one piece of parsley, etc., on our Seder plate. Um, in as a way of of making the story more. Uh, just as everything in Italy is, is you know, full, very full, uh, their Seder plate, it's also full. So they say no symbolic portions, but a basket overflowing with greens. The bitter herb is instead of just one little piece, it's a whole head of lettuce sitting next to a full stack of celery, eggs, matzah, salty water. And this was a little bit, uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it to you to be the judge. Um, they, instead of just the, the shank bone, they have a furry lamb's leg that we shampooed and blew, and blow dried for the occasion, um, really reminding us of the Paschal offering. And this is something we'll come back to also. Um, they Their haroset is not the traditional one that we consider traditional with uh, a little red wine and cinnamon and uh, nuts and apples. Theirs is also has nuts, uh, but has blood oranges, almond sugar and blood oranges. Um, and what, what is common is that every country, depending on the ecology, depending on what grows there, depending on what's common there, they have their own haroset, uh, which is um, just as a reminder, the, the sweet paste that uh, symbolizes the, the mortar that bound the bricks um, that the Israelite slaves made in Egypt. Okay, um, Ethiopia. So uh, most of the Ethiopian Jewish community is now in Israel, but there's still a significant amount uh, that remain in Ethiopia. Um, I'm just gonna read two of these uh, little quotes um, uh, from an article about Ethiopian Pesach. Um, the ritual meal took place outdoors by moonlight. The Jews sat on the ground separated by age and gender. So that's uh, definitely a difference as far as we're concerned. Um, they, they traditionally had a very sparse meal of kita, which is Ethiopian matzah and meat. And this is my favorite part. The whole meal was eaten very rapidly as if indeed they were fleeing from Egypt. So not only do they tell the story, uh, but the meal itself they eat rapidly to, to, I guess, spur on indigestion and to remind us of what it was like to leave Egypt. Um, this is also a new tradition for me um, never heard of this before. To celebrate Passover and their past, the Ethiopian Jews break all of their old existing earthenware dishes and cooking utensils and purchase new ones. By doing this, they feel that they are breaking away from the past and getting a fresh start into a new life. So we, we talk about the fact that Pesach and cleaning um, all of our chametz, all of our um, you know, leavened product, out of our house is kind of an early and ancient form of spring cleaning. Um, it's certainly an idea that Passover has kind of glommed on to a spring holiday of renewal. And so this is a really interesting symbol of um, renewals, starting fresh um, with new utensils. So this is a tradition. Um, it's not a food, it is a food tradition, but it doesn't get eaten. Um, if none of you, if you haven't seen this, You'll, you'll, you're in for a treat. In uh, Persia, in so uh, Iran, but also Iraq and Afghanistan and other places in the Middle East, um, they have a tradition while they sing Dayenu of 
Uh, well, you'll see. Oh, let me share my sound, excuse me. Okay. So this is a relatively tame example. I want to show you a bit more intense. Oh, it's muted. Sorry. So as you can see, what are they doing with the um, the stallions? They're whipping each other. They're slapping each other. And it is supposed to, there's a couple different interpretations, uh, but it, it the, the most logical one to me is that they're uh, reminding the themselves of the uh, slaves who were, were whipped by the Israelite, ta sorry, by the Egyptian ta taskmasters. Um, and so they're saying, God, if Dayenu, um, if you had freed us from slavery, but not, you know, let us out of Egypt, Dayenu, it's to recall uh, that moment of uh, slapping, but clearly uh, they're having a little fun with it. Just just as uh, is tradition in Judaism, you know, they persecuted us. Uh, let's have fun. Let's eat. Okay. I'll go back to my presentation. Thank you, Waynet, for the treat. So related to, perhaps related, and, and another reason why scallions are the uh, vegetable of choice for the whip is um, garlic. So garlic or scallion or onion is yes, always upstaged uh, by adorable babies. Happy, happy to be upstaged by that. Um, many Middle Eastern countries have a tradition of eating foods flavored by garlic. Um, I'm glad my mom is not on this call because she doesn't like garlic. But if my wife were here, she'd be very excited because we, we in our house, we put garlic on just about everything um, and, and we slather it on there. Um, but why garlic? Well, if you look back at the Exodus story in the book of Numbers, um, we have this kind of bemoaning or complaining on the part of the Israelites about their, their food situation at, in the desert relative to their food situation that they had in Egypt. So I left out the, ver the, the first quote or the, the first verse before this one was they said, remember in Egypt, we had meat to eat. Um, here, all we have, and this is the last verse, all we have now is this manna, this manna stuff to look to. Um, I remember as a little kid, Rabbi Greenstein explained manna to us as uh, tofu. It's like the kind of thing that probably isn't a great consistency um, and kind of takes on the flavor of whatever you, you cook it with, although they didn't have to cook the manna. Um, we don't exactly know what manna was, 
but clearly the Israelites didn't like it. What did they um, remember the grasses being greener um, as being like? They said they remember the fish that we used to eat in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. And now our gullets are shriveled. There's nothing at all but this manna, this gross manna tofu stuff, although I, I do like tofu. Um, so many countries, including, um, including Morocco, including uh, kind of all throughout North Africa and the Middle East, have garlic as a heavy part of their seasoning for this holiday. So in Yemen, um, and I just think it's so fascinating how every country takes such a different tact or, or a different thing that they emphasize. So back in Italy, to me, the, the biggest thing that they emphasized was the uh, furry lamb leg. Um, so remembering the Paschal sacrifice. In Yemen, they emphasize a different part of the Seder plate. They emphasize the egg. So traditionally, um, the egg represents a couple things. It reminds us of the um, Paschal offering as well. And that's why some families char the egg before they put it on the uh, Seder plate. But it also, of course, reminds us of rebirth. And just as the Israelite people were born, in a sense, out of slavery, out of the redemption from slavery, the egg symbolizes the rebirth that we, every year, um, can, can create within ourselves. And so they, they really uh, went wild with this whole egg idea. And I'll just read from the bottom. It says, um, traditionally, a range of different types of eggs would be available including some sort of egg cake consisting of egg and chopped potatoes, fried eggs, omelets, and of course, a hard boiled eggs. But most, so nowadays um, they have more of a full meal and um, they, it looks kind of like this one on the right. This one is a traditional soup, chicken soup, which is actually much more common in the Ashkenazi world than in the Sephardic world. Um, but they have this traditional soup with traditional Yemenite spices. Um, I, it's called like halawaj or something, the spice blend. Um, but it gives it a traditional, or sorry, a typical yellow tint. But one thing I want to point out is that they have this special Passover bread that is not matzah. They do eat matzah that you can see over to the left that looks kind of like a matzah. But here, this is what you might think of more like an Ethiopian um, Oh gosh, what's Ethiopian bread called? Anybody remember? I'm blanking on it. Um, but it's kind of like that where it is a flat bread and it it's certainly exposed for less than 18 minutes, but it, it is a little bit softer than a traditional um, matzah. I don't think it's non. Um, good guess, Laura. I the Ethiopian, ah, injera. Thank you, Rabbi, Rabbi Jeremy. Exactly, injera. So a couple more I just want to share with you, and then we'll, we'll take time for comments and questions. Oh, thank you, Google and Rabbi Jeremy. This is called plov, um, and it's not just specific to Pesach, but any Central European country, um, or, or Central African country, not sorry, Central Asian country will have plov, or you, it's also pronounced pilaf. Um, so, like rice pilaf is similar to this plov. Um, it's a Bukharan dish. Where's Bukharia? Um, 
I'm actually not even sure if the place is called Bukharia or if the Jews from there are just called Bukharan Jews, but it's like Tajikistan, um, Central Asian republics um, in, that we have in modern day. They have a very unique um, culture that arose kind of in, in isolation from other Jewish con uh, countries and cultures. So they actually have a, their own language. We think about Jewish languages as being Yiddish and Ladino. But Bukharan Jews have their own language that's, I think it's called like, uh, I don't know what it's called. When we click the link, it'll say, um, but it's like a Judeo-Tajik. It's a mix of, of Tajik, I believe, and um, some type of Jewish, whether it's it's Hebrew or Aramaic or something like that. Um, this looks quite delicious. The other thing I want to point out before we watch this video is that it uh, also has kidney oat. They also eat rice. We'll, we'll watch this video, not actually because it has anything to do with food, but when I came, uh, when I was researching, I came upon their song, traditional Passover song, which we sing, um, Chad Gadya. One, uh, what is it? One kid. What is a kid? Is that a goat? One little goat. Uh, they have their own version of that, and we'll hear it now. And, and the music is, is really quite striking. It's called, um, uh, oh, I guess Bukharian is the language, and it's Judeo-Tajik is, is uh, what the language is a combination of. And um, the name of this song, it is this, basically the same as Chad Gad Ya. It's a story about the cycle of life, but uh, it's called uh, Jean Bugjole or something like that. Who knows how, how to pronounce it? Okay, here we go. So um, I'm I'll drop the link in the chat if you want to watch the whole thing. It's really cool. And they actually have a little bit of Hebrew in there, too. If you know the words, you can um, they go back and forth a little bit. Where's the chat? There we go, if you want to watch the whole thing. Um, but as you can tell, they have a very different musical style, musical, um, what's the word? Um, I don't know, I can't think of the, the right word, but they're, the whole meter is, is not um, common to uh, an Ashkenazi or even Sephardic um, sounding or like Yemenite. If, if, you, if you've ever been to a Yemenite synagogue, and you know kind of the tenor of their music. This is even unto itself 
um, and clearly the instruments, which there uh, you might know what those are, and it says right here. Um, one of them is the oud, and then one of them is the camanche or something like that. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, um, but clearly they also have really uh, interesting and, and beautiful sounding instruments that are different than uh, what we're probably used to. Okay, so I want to just share one more thing before we uh, take time for questions and, and your thoughts. So, oh, well, there's Haroset from all over the world. Each place has their own um, kind of style based on the typical foods that you find there. So um, a lot of places have like dried fruits um, that where we typically use fresh apple. Um, and also they have uh, spices, not just cinnamon that we're, we're accustomed to, but all different kinds. Uh, but I, I wanted to point out one other thing, which is fava beans. So fava beans are a very typical food for Passover during uh, in North Africa, in uh, Egypt most most uh, prominently, but also Morocco and Tunisia or Tunisia. Um, this soup on the left is just a blended fava bean soup um, from Egypt, and this on the right is a traditional um, Passover dish in Tunisia. It's actually a shakshuka with fava beans. Why fava beans? I know everybody's getting very hungry now. Um, why fava beans? So according to some traditions, fava beans were actually what the Israelite slaves ate in Egypt. And we do know that um, fava beans have been eaten in Egypt for thousands of years. So it's certainly uh, possible that this legend is true. And so as a way of recalling, uh, you know, our experience in Egypt, we eat fava, these countries eat fava beans um, all throughout Pesach. So uh, let's leave it there. And we'd love to know your thoughts, what kind of what you took away from this. And if you've had any Jewish food experiences that are not Ashkenormative, that are kind of outside our normal day-to-day um, -day that you want to share. Rabbi, I'll share that at Pesach, when my grandmother of blessed memory was alive, and she was 100% Turkish, so, uh, you know, it was all um, Sephardic food, she made a spinach kugel, and I have the recipe for that now, and it is so fabulous. Um, the flavor of it is similar to my, maybe kind of like a spanikopita, but the bottom of it is with, you know, moistened uh, matzah is the, you know, bottom crust. And then it's a spinach with egg and cheese kind of thing that's on top of it that you bake and mm, 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 spinach kugel. Wow. It's, it sounds delicious. And, and um, there are different, I came across one and I'm trying to remember the country, maybe I actually think, yeah, you say she was Turkish? Yes, yes. Turkey. Yes. Yeah. In Turkey, um, they have that meal. It's not a, it's not a meal. It's not a dish that they typically serve at the Seder. Um, it's because there's dairy in it. So they serve it uh -huh. at dairy meals throughout the week. Um, during, least, Pesach. 
during Pesach, during Pesach. Right. And that's, exactly. I'm sure that's what my grandmother probably did. Cause she was, we weren't kosher, but she was. So, you know, uh, in her home, I'm sure it was served as you're, as you're describing. And another thing she made that was amazing, that was not for Pesach, but borekas. Oh my goodness. Borekas. Ooh. So I, I want to, um, jump in because one of my teachers in Israel said, never make this mistake. Um, to us, because barekas are perhaps the most delicious uh, of all Israeli foods. Uh, they're like puff pastry. I'm going to pull up a picture real quick, but they're like puff pastry um, filled with cheese or mushrooms or potatoes. But see, okay. and maybe this is because she was Turkish, but it wasn't puff pastry. That's the difference. Really? It wasn't. And the pastry that she made, the dough she did it with was beyond compare. It was just amazing. Wow. Look at that. And uh, they're, they're so typically so flaky and have a sesame seed topping. But the thing my, my teacher, um, Jeremy Lee, told us was, barekas, this is exactly like what Jeremy said before, Rabbi Jeremy, barekas is singular. Even though it ends with an S, don't ever make the mistake. It's one barekas. Multiple is barekasin. Um, and I don't even know what you'd say in English, barekases. Uh, so there, if you're in Israel, remember Barakas is singular. Um, other thoughts. I, I have a question. I, I saw roasted lamb was used and, and I love lamb, but usually they frown on that. I heard, so I don't know how called different cultures. I, I forget who, I think maybe it was a Middle Eastern country was using lamb. Jeremy, do you want to touch on that? I'm happy to. Sure. What I can say, at least um, in Ashkenazi tradition, uh, first of all, it would seem obvious, right? That based upon the, the, the Paschal lamb and centrality, to the story that, yeah, shouldn't the Passover meal have lamb in it? Wouldn't that be obvious? But, you know, it's, I have never been to a Seder in, in my, my Ash, admittedly Ashkenazi bubble uh, where lamb has been served. And part of that is because the Paschal lamb was also the Passover sacrifice in the temple in commemoration of the Exodus. Temple was destroyed. The rabbinic tradition said, all right, enough of, you know, we're obviously not sacrificing or offering lambs anymore. We're not eating them either. Um, and so it became frowned upon. Now, yeah, I, that was great catching it because it didn't even occur to me, but what uh, Jeff mentioned or Rabbi Jeff mentioned about, um, you know, lamb being um, part of the menu in, in um, Mizrahi or Sephardic communities. Uh, so I'm not familiar with it. I don't, I can't give much more of an answer than that. I don't know if Rabbi Jeff, you have anything to add to it. Yeah, no, that that's a great answer. And I do think that's where the taboo came from was um, not wanting to kind of replicate the the uh, offering that was made in the temple, the specific Passover offering. Um, but I did come across a and I'm looking this this is a really wonderful book um, that I got in preparation for this class and have been blown away um, and just salivate every time I open it. It's called The Book of Jewish Food, um, an odyssey from Samarkand to New York, um, with more than 800 Ashkenazi and Sephardi recipes. Highly recommend. Um, but what I love about it is it has a lot of stories and explanations uh, about 
the evolution or the history uh, or the meaning behind the foods, not just not just the foods themselves or the recipes themselves. And um, the author, actually, Claudia Rodin, was originally from Egypt. So she has a, a specific, uh, you know, it, additional knowledge for Middle Eastern cuisine. But they didn't mention that in this book. And I'm trying to find why. And I think it's mainly in Sephardic countries where that taboo or that custom of not eating lamb was not as prominent. But I, I can't find it right this second. I, I would just like to also say, um, I, I well, hello. <laughs> I live in Jacksonville. My friend Irene is from Miami. Warner, she told me about your congregation and she suggested I watch. It's, this is very cool what you're doing. Um, what I was gonna say, when I lived in Miami, I, lived, I was part of a conservative synagogue, very active. And we were like the diaspora there. We had people from all over South America, Central America, Europe, is whatever, Israeli, you know, Greek. And we had a Seder in like five languages. We took turns with different languages to, um, and then that was pretty cool. We, we kind of brought in a lot of, um, with the Spanish, Ladino, you know, we, we just kind of played with it. And then all the foods too. So. Wow. Well, wow. thank you. Thanks for being here, Martha. And uh, you're welcome. I'm so glad that you found us and come back anytime. And I love Irene Wanna. Tell her Wendy says hello. Any, anybody want to add any other um, fun food experience that you've had? Well, Rabbi, I, th I thought the part about the shampooed and blow-dried <laughs> lamb's leg was kind of weird, truthfully. It conjured up images of fields full of little three-legged lambs hobbling around. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to think that they, um, you know, uh, shared all of the... Uh, that all of the parts of the animal were, were uh, used, you know, but uh, well, I guess we'll just have to go to Italy, an Italian Seder and find out. Well, I think uh, I'm just looking at the time that um, we are, have reached the end of our hour, but let this be, if nothing else, just a reminder that many of us who are immersed in the Jewish world, including rabbis are like, oh yeah, I'm an expert in Judaism, not that I would ever describe myself that way, but um, whether or not you do that, what that, what that probably means is that you are expert or knowledgeable in Ashkenazi Judaism for most people. Now I realize there may be people watching this um, who have a very different background or a very different family background, in which case I'm sorry for making assumptions, but for most American Jews, our understanding of Judaism stems from an Ashkenazi understanding. So. You know, I do think that's important for our own benefit and for Jews from around the world to be like, oh, yeah, I love Jewish food. That's, do you mean Jewish food or do you mean Ashkenazi Jewish food? Um, and, you know, there's no shame in realizing, oh, I've gotten this wrong. As recently as uh, when uh, Rabbi Jeff and I were preparing for this, I mean, like Purim, am I just going to talk about cookies for 25 minutes? Because that's all I can think of. That, that, that's where I was and, and just had my horizons uh, radically expanded just by doing this. And now I want to figure out like Hanukkah and other holidays, uh, because I bet you there's more than just latkes and jelly donuts uh, for Hanukkah. I guarantee it. Or gold coins, right? Chocolate coins. Uh, but, you know, 
I've never, I've never made an effort to really try to find out what all those other traditions are. So hopefully this has been enlightening, interesting. Um, the good news is with the internet, it's all readily available. Literally just Google Purim foods and you'll see great lists on my Jewish learning or the Nasher kinds of Jewish cooking sites that have all of this stuff with recipes. So uh, go out there, explore and, and let us know what you find. And thank you for being here for, for this today. I, I totally agree. And before you leave, I want to thank all of you who've been with us for this whole three-part series um, this month uh, about Jewish food. It's been really fun. And uh, for those of you passionate about this subject, if you haven't yet picked up uh, Shalom Y'all, Temple Israel's very own cookbook, um, I highly recommend that you do. It's it's really beautifully done. And um, if if you're interested in recipes not from not just from all over the world, but from right here in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, this is the book for you and it makes a wonderful gift. So check it out. You can get it um, in the Sisterhood gift shop here at Temple or on our website. Um, we ship it nationwide. Take care, everybody. Thank you. And thank you to Rabbi uh, Simons for your partnership on this uh, project. Take care, everybody. <laughs>